Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, coming to you today with another very pleasurable around-the-world conversation as I'm calling from Vancouver to Melbourne, Australia. I have the joy of speaking with Andrea Bramley, who, along with Lisa McKenna, has a paper coming out in the September 2021 issue of Medical Education entitled EPAs and Entry-Level Health Professional Education, a Scoping Review. And Andrea is adjunct senior lecturer at La Trobe University, as well as head of allied health education at Monash Health Center. And Andrea, I understand that this is part of your PhD studies as well. So you really have your hands full nowadays. Yeah, I do. Thanks for the introduction, Kevin. I'm really excited to share this work. Yes, this paper has formed a small part of my PhD studies that look at EPAs more broadly. I'm a dietitian by background and I've designed a work-based assessment tool using EPAs for our students on clinical placements. And as part of doing that work, Lisa, who's my PhD supervisor, suggested I do a scoping review in entry-level education to see what other people were doing, how they were using EPAs, and to really use other people's evidence to inform my practice. That's sort of how this idea for the scoping review came about, and it was really interesting actually performing the review and analysing the data. Well, and just before we get into the details of this particular paper then do you mind if I ask you to just expand a bit on the broader focus of your PhD work at the risk of turning this into a premature defense um, what's the big picture that you're pursuing with the research that you're doing the big picture my background is a clinical dietitian so for many years I've been charged with being a field educator so having students do their clinical placements and then having my assessment feed into their overall assessment against their competency we have a competency-based system in Australia and other professions in Australia have national tools that they use for work-based assessment and dietetics don't at this stage and as clinicians we found assessing students against some of our national competencies to be quite a challenge. Competencies described sort of values and attributes and broad picture things. And we found that very difficult to actually assess in the workplace. And also students were very assessment focused. So they really wanted to get that competency tick. And some cases that really removed the patient from the situation. So my motivation was to design a tool that I guess put the patient, the student and the clinician on the same page and made it easy for assessors to use. Because most clinicians in Australia anyway aren't funded to supervise students. They're doing it in addition to their normal workload. So making things simple and easy for them is really important. And when I looked into it, EPAs make sense to clinicians because they describe the work that people do anyway. So being able to use EPAs to assess student performance made sense to me. And I sort of embarked on this journey of my PhD to develop that and to come up with a system that worked for students, supervisors or clinical educators, but also academics as well. Where my research is actually led in the tool that I've designed because of the entrustment scale, the tool generates a lot of data automatically that we can then use to track cohorts of students remotely, but also to really do some analysis on 
what they're struggling to do in the placement and then look to enrich that in the classroom and then measure the outcome of that teaching. As an academic, I found that my work was judged on my student satisfaction scores, which is all well and good, but it didn't actually give me any feedback about how my subjects were preparing students for their clinical placements. Mm. Uh, I think I've digressed in that answer, but <laughs> that's how it's No, no, that, that's all good. And it helps explain why this work is so laudable and so important to pursue. I imagine most people listening will be familiar with the concept of EPAs, but some won't be. And in any case, labels like that tend to mean different things in different places. So maybe I should ask you to clarify in a bit more detail, how are you using the term and what does your actual system look like? So it's still evolving. And I began this work in... 2016, so some time now, but what we sort of viewed as an EPA was a unit of practice or an activity that defined a profession and it was linked to several competencies. So for the student to be able to conduct the activity, they needed to possess the underlying competencies, skills, knowledge, attitudes and then perform that activity and as they became closer to that work-ready status, the supervisor needed to support them less and less. And also this research sort of confirmed in the entry-level space, EPAs are being used a lot to define what graduates of a health profession course should be able to do at the end of their course of study with I guess, reactive supervision only. So we don't expect in Australia our graduates to be 100% independent, but they should be at a position where they can perform the activities of their profession, say in a hospital setting or in a community health centre, at a level where it's safe for them to practice with just some reactive supervision. So that's having a supervisor close by and able to check their findings, but they're not physically in the room helping them along the way. So that's sort of point in practice we defined as entry level and we defined that in the paper as well. We identified that EPAs had really developed in the postgraduate medical space in the US and a lot of medical specialties have taken up EPAs but from an entry level point of view they're a really helpful concept that I guess enhances competency-based education because they describe the practice that is realistic for someone to perform at the end of their study with some support, but relatively independently. Well, and did your review of the literature generate insights into how these things are used differently or yield different outcomes in the entry level versus the more commonly applied contexts of postgrad? In the entry level or the undergraduate space, quite a lot of the papers that were included in the review work to really define that point of practice, that entry level point of practice. So they help define the expectations of what a graduate should be able to do. Whereas I think more in the postgraduate space, they're more specific to that specialty or that profession. And this is still a very evolving space. So of the papers that we found, there was a real mix. Some were single institution studies or single profession studies where they'd implemented EPAs in their profession at their educational institute, whereas others were more at that sort of national or broader approach where groups of working parties had come together to define EPAs that described practice that could be held up for a national standard. So there was a mix of those really in the literature. So a lot of the literature was 
development of EPAs, but it also showed how EPAs were being used to evaluate graduate performance. And so given all the benefits that you alluded to and all the reasons you might pursue this path, what have you come across in terms of the typical stumbling blocks? Where do things go wrong when people try to use EPAs for the ends that you're trying to help people achieve? I actually don't think things go wrong. I think where they go right is they can actually be used to measure different types of education or different programs. So that's probably something that's really exciting. So you could have two different programs with the same outcomes and you can actually use EPAs to potentially say, well, this model of training is better or this model of training is better because the outcomes are the same. So there was a few papers actually in there that really started to do that. And I think one of the potential benefits or logistically, I'm not sure how it can be achieved still, but it offers a potential model for measuring people in a more longitudinal fashion rather than having this sort of time-limited apprentice model. You can have people progressing through their placements and achieving entrustment early potentially or conversely achieving entrustment later. One area of controversy though I think is that In the undergraduate space or the entry-level space, there's still a need for granularity of feedback. So in the postgraduate space, I think there's been articles written that sort of describe the ideal number of EPAs, whereas in the undergraduate space, I think that's less well-defined. And I think there's still a risk that EPAs can potentially get atomized into lots of tiny little items. Mm. That's a potential risk that we need to be aware of. But there is this balance for the need of granularity of feedback for really junior learners. They need that feedback. But then if you have too many, it just becomes another unwieldy tool. There's a couple of papers in there as well that demonstrated that part of the appeal of EPAs and entrustment scales is they give a quantitative sort of picture of how a student is doing, but we can't really lose the qualitative feedback. The narrative comments and the quality feedback are just as important for student learning as the overall URL level, whatever on whatever scale. Students really like that and find that appealing, but I think that from a learning and teaching perspective, that qualitative feedback and having space for that, particularly in the undergraduate space or entry-level space, is really important. And so all those things considered, what can we expect next from you? You obviously have more work going on in this area, given you're continuing to pursue your PhD, but what's the highest priority issue that you think we need to resolve? I think that I'm in the process of just preparing my publications, but I've validated my tool in a dietetic context and I'm looking for people, other institutions to possibly take that up to see how it works. We've found it to be very sustainable and clinicians who are training students in placement really understand the entrustment scale and it's quite easy for them. So when I did some qualitative research, one thing that's really stuck in my mind is a supervisor saying, it's really easy for me to make a judgment because did I need to step in there or not and if I'm not stepping in there then the student is performing that APA and then that generates the evidence for the underlying competencies I think from my profession there's little evidence about what specific areas students need help with so I think understanding that a little bit more just to be able to use our resources effectively so what can we do back at university to really prepare students for placement 
patients that are getting more complex, students are not able to dip their toe in the water anymore and see a couple of relatively straightforward patients to sort of cut their teeth on because they just don't exist. You know, people in Australia anyway, and I'm sure it's the same around the world, are admitted with multiple conditions and it can be really overwhelming for a junior learner to do that. So I'd like to understand, use the the data that's generated from EPAs to understand where students are struggling to be entrusted in and working out how we can support them and their teachers. Mm -hmm. So that's somewhere I see really EPAs being useful for that from a student perspective. I'd like to see more from other professions other than my own, just looking at how EPAs are evaluated and how they're enhancing learning rather than just becoming another thing to do. I think the signal coming from the literature is that they're positive. And one of the trends in our paper, when I first started the scoping review, there was not a lot to be found. And then all of a sudden there was just this flurry of publications on EPAs. I think we need to be careful about conflation of terms as well in competency-based education and education in general. People can use many terms to describe the same thing and that's obviously a little bit of a risk, making sure we've all got a common language and definition that we're using to try and make it easier to do reviews and look at things you know, in an interprofessional way to get that broader data. All important topics and questions that will keep you busy well beyond the PhD studies that you're doing. So I think I'll leave things at that as a very strong and important list of future activities for those who want to read Andrea Bramley's work and see where it has led her so far. Again, you'll find the paper that we've been discussing in the September 2021 issue of medical education under the title Entrustable Professional Activities in Entry-Level Health Professional Education, a Scoping Review. Thanks again, Andrea, for making the time to talk and uh, wish you the sincere best of luck with your PhD. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to talk to you. Thank you.